Welcome to another edition of the American Bankruptcy Institute podcasts, which feature conversations with prominent figures in the bankruptcy world about topics of interest to our members. I am Laura Bartell, professor of law at Wayne State University Law School and current resident scholar at the American Bankruptcy Institute. I am pleased to welcome as my guest today, Professor Richard Lieb, research professor of law and director of the St. John's Institute for Bankruptcy Policy at St. John's University School of Law in New York. Our topic today is the pending Supreme Court case, Stern v. Marshall, in which Professor Lieb has recently submitted an amicus brief on behalf of a group of law professors, of whom I was one. Dick, could you begin by describing a bit about your work at St. John's and the Institute for Bankruptcy Policy? Uh, yes, uh, so we have a, an LLM in bankruptcy program, which I think is the only one uh, that offers a master's program in bankruptcy uh, in, in the United States and perhaps worldwide. Uh, uh, we, uh, uh, as part of that program, I, I teach a number of courses, including one in uh, the preparation and uh, uh, writing of uh, amicus briefs, uh, principally for filing for uh, law professors as amici in the United States Supreme Court. Uh, uh, in, uh, in this particular course, we generally have seven or eight students who work extremely hard uh, during a uh, uh, concentrated period of time because of the uh, very short time under Supreme Court rules for the uh, filing of uh, briefs. Uh, the... Uh, we began this course, as I recall it, in 2005. Wow, that's now five or six years ago. Uh, and uh, since then, each year, uh, students have prepared, with a little assistance from me, uh, uh, an amicus brief. Uh, the one that we filed on November 15th, just seems like a lifetime ago, but uh, uh, just two weeks ago, in Stern against Marshall, is the uh, is the uh, seventh brief filed as a uh, student project with the Supreme Court? Uh, the first one filed in the Supreme Court, uh, interestingly, was filed in Marshall against Marshall in November of 2005, which is the uh, very which was the subject of it was the very same controversy, which is uh, back for its second trip to the Supreme Court in Stern against Marshall. Tell us a bit about Stern versus Marshall. When I uh, first saw that uh, uh, it was decided, uh, it uh, didn't for a moment strike me that the question of the uh, constitutionality of uh, 28 U.S.C. Section 157b2c could be terribly important. That is a provision uh, which, uh, under which counterclaims are deemed to be core proceedings and as such may be fully adjudicated by a bankruptcy judge subject only to uh, conventional appellate review rather than uh, if it were not a if a counterclaim were not a core proceeding uh, it would require <clears throat> that uh, 
there be a final order by the Article Three District Court, uh, which could uh, 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 ha- uh, conduct uh, de novo review. So it would be a, a totally new proceeding in the district court, uh, creating uh, a very complex picture in bankruptcy if uh, counterclaims would not go up proceedings because you would be involved with the claims allowance process to determine the claim of the creditor. And when there is a counterclaim, particularly a compulsory counterclaim, uh, which would be a defense to the creditor's proof of claim, that counterclaim, uh, if it were not core, could not be decided by the bankruptcy judge, but would require a district court determination. So it would require basically two proceedings over uh, uh, transactions that uh, uh, or occurrences that arose out of the same circumstances, uh, it would totally complicate bankruptcy practice, lead to uh, confusion, uh, delays in completing bankruptcy cases, and uh, doubling up on expenses. Uh, now, the thing that, <coughs> pardon me, struck uh, my students and me about uh, this particular issue was that if on some theory a counterclaim, particularly a compulsory counterclaim, which uh, could not be asserted anywhere but in the bankruptcy setting because of its compulsory nature, uh, if uh, if there were a theory under which a uh, counterclaim were not a core proceeding, the same theory could apply to all of the numerous other uh, matters determined by Section 157B to be core proceedings, and that would ba- that could basically have upset and could upset if the court goes that way the entire present bankruptcy jurisdictional system. Well, that was a big concern, and uh, in the course, what uh, my students and I have tried to do would be to uh, make. Uh, uh, law professors who we know are aware of the problem, see whether they see it the same way, <clears throat> and if so, whether they would like to join an amicus brief that would be written as a course project for filing the Supreme Court. So that was what occurred in Stern against Marshall, and uh, uh, including Professor Bartell, 13 uh, uh, law professors from a variety of law schools uh, are the uh, amici in the Professor Amicus brief that was just filed. Well, that was a long answer, but there it is. Can you tell us a little bit about the nature of the compulsory counterclaim in Stern versus Marshall? What were the facts? They're a little bit colorful. Yes. Well, uh, many people will remember that uh, uh, the initial parties uh, to this controversy were uh, Anna Nicole Smith, uh, also known as uh, Vicki Lynn Marshall who uh, uh, a couple of years before uh, the first trip of the case to the Supreme Court had married an elderly gentleman, Mr. Marshall, uh, who, uh, as found in in the proceeding, had uh, promised to make her an interfibos gift of a portion of his massive estate that was amassed uh, through his uh, investment in oil properties in Texas. Uh, they were married. He was, uh, I believe, close to 90 when they were married, and she was 
I think, uh, uh, under 30. And they had a wonderful marriage for about two years. And Mr. Marshall died without performing, without making the gifts that he had promised to make. Uh, uh, litigation ensued in a Texas probate court between uh, 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 Ms. Marshall and her stepson, uh, uh, E. Pierce Marshall, uh, over the estate. Uh, at, at some point after that, uh, because of a dispute that uh, Ms. Marshall had with a housekeeper, which resulted in a personal injury judgment against her, she filed uh, a Chapter 11 case in California. Uh, in that case, her stepson asserted uh, uh, a non-dischargeability proceeding and also brought a proceeding, uh, 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 asserted a claim, a proof of claim, uh, in which he asserted that uh, Miss Marshall, with others, had defamed him by going to the press and saying things about him which were not true. In that proceeding, Miss Marshall counterclaimed asserting that uh, Mr. Marshall had tortiously interfered with her obtaining the intervivos gift that had been promised to her by her late husband. Uh, so what you had was a very simple claim uh, uh, for defamation and a counterclaim for tortious interference, both state law-based uh, uh, proceedings. Uh, well, the case went forward, and there was a withdrawal of the reference, and then that was uh, rescinded, and the case went back to the bankruptcy court. Uh, I believe that summary judgment was granted against Mr. Marshall on his claim, but the bankruptcy court proceeded to conduct a lengthy trial. Uh, I think people will remember that the bankruptcy judge also was quite vocal to the press while the trial was going on. Uh, and <clears throat> it ended in a judgment uh, for Ms. Marshall uh, uh, for including punitive damages, uh, an amount that approximated $500 million. Uh, the uh, uh, case was then uh, went up to the district court. The district court... Uh, uh, made a determination that the uh, counterclaim was not a core proceeding uh, and proceeded to hold a de novo hearing, a trial, which I believe uh, uh, was a trial with uh, live witnesses. And again, there was a ruling for Miss Marshall, but this time she didn't fare quite as well. The judgment of the district court was for only $88 million dollars. Uh, a very handsome sum. <clears throat> uh, there were other proceedings in the Texas probate court, and somehow there was a finding in that court, uh, which may have been a tangential finding, that uh, Ms. Marshall uh, did not have a valid claim to an intervivos gift. And that ruling was issued before the district court's judgment in her, fa her favor, but after the bankruptcy court's judgment. And essentially, in, in that posture, 
if the bankruptcy court's uh, judgment uh, was final because the uh, counterclaim for tortious interference was a court proceeding, it was the first judgment, and it would be entitled to race judicata, and the Texas adverse judgment uh, would not uh, would not be the uh, uh, controlling judgment. Uh, in that posture, it went up to the uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which made two determinations. First, very clearly uh, uh, concluding that the counterclaim was a compulsory counterclaim, not a permissive one. It was compulsory, it said, because it arose out of the same transaction or occurrence as the claim for defamation, uh, which all revolved over whether or not there was a promise for an intervivos gift made by the late husband of Miss Marshall. Uh, but it went on to hold that uh, to uh, hold that uh, the compulsory counterclaim was a core proceeding uh, where there was not an absolute identity of the factual issues between the, the creditor's claim and the compulsory counterclaim to hold that that uh, was a core proceeding in the absence of such absolute identity would have run afoul of Article Three uh, of the Constitution, which uh, 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 limits what a bankruptcy judge can do. And it was uh, in that posture that uh, a petition for cert was made to the Supreme Court, which was granted, and which is the case that is now uh, uh, pending for argument before the court on January 18 of uh, 2011, uh, about two months from now. Uh, there, uh, the uh, briefs of the uh, petitioner, oh, by the way, the parties to that now are the executor for the estate of uh, Ms. Marshall, uh, who uh, died shortly after her first victory in the Supreme Court in 2006, and opposed by the uh, executrix for her stepson, uh, Pierce Marshall, who also has died. So what we have are uh, ex executor against executrix in the appeal pending before the Supreme Court. So petitioner, who lost in the uh, Ninth Circuit, has appealed and wrote a sterling brief. Uh, there, um, as I said, the uh, 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 professors uh, as a group have filed an amicus brief in support of Petitioner. Uh, a few days ago, the uh, Solicitor General of the United States, on behalf of the United States, filed a uh, lengthy amicus brief also on behalf of uh, Petitioner. Uh, and uh, there is a third amicus brief in support of Petitioner filed by the uh, National Association of Bankruptcy Trustees who take the position that uh, a reversal is required uh, so that bankruptcy trustees can uh, effectively and efficiently uh, perform uh, their duties in, in uh, bankruptcy cases. Uh, uh, the uh, respondent's brief uh, uh, is due to be filed, I think, around December 20th. And no doubt it will uh, 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 generate uh, one or more amicus briefs in support of respondents' position. So that's where the case stands at the moment.
As you said, the Ninth Circuit decided that Vicki Marshall's counterclaim for tortious interference was a compulsory counterclaim because it was based yes, on the same clear in that. same operative facts that underlied Pierce Marshall's defamation claim. Well, but, the, the, it, based on the same transactional occurrence, which is the uh, precise language of uh, 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 Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 13, which is incorporated into Bankruptcy Rule 7013 for bankruptcy purposes. But then the court went on to say that it was non-core because it was not, as the court put it, so closely related to the proof of claim that the resolution of the counterclaim is necessary to resolve the allowance or disallowance of the claim itself. My question for you is, are there likely to be a lot of compulsory counterclaims that would be non-core under this Ninth Circuit test? You know, it's really hard to imagine uh uh, whether or not there will be. I suspect that uh, uh, it is a distinct possibility that there are uh, numerous others lurking out there. Well, if there are all these other counterclaims that could be non-core, as a practical matter, how would those counterclaims get resolved once a proof of claim had been filed? Well, there could be... Uh, uh, Preliminary proceedings, short of final judgment, taken in the bankruptcy court. Uh, the bankruptcy court would a judge would be required, uh, absent consent of the parties, and uh, when they're at war, consent is not likely. The bankruptcy judge would be required to uh, uh, submit uh, 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 proposed findings of fact and conclusions of law to the district court. The district court. Uh, under Section 157C uh, uh, of Title 28, uh, would be uh, required to conduct a uh, de novo hearing uh, and uh, then render its judgment on the uh, on the counterclaim, uh, which would then come back to the bankruptcy court uh, to be meshed with the court's the bankruptcy judge's determination on the claim, but then it would be a, a defense or a set-off uh, or a uh, an affirmative recovery, depending upon what the district court's uh, judgment was. But it would be a very it would be complicated, uh, and in in that setting, uh, in that procedural uh, structure, uh, it would uh, hold up the conclusion of. Uh, the uh, uh, claims of the creditors involved and very well in significant cases would uh, en entirely delay the conclusion of the uh, of the full bankruptcy case until the uh, district court uh, made its uh, uh, concluded its proceedings and entered its judgment uh, and essentially could uh, put the parties to having to try counterclaims in two courts first in the bankruptcy court and then in the district court unless the district court chose to withdraw the whole thing, which I suspect would not be uh, likely to happen. Uh, uh, the, there are uh, uh, probably, uh, what are there, a million and a half bankruptcy cases filed every year. About one-third of them are Chapter 11 cases. Uh, the numbers are very large. However, the numbers of withdrawal are rather small. Uh, in recent years, uh, as I recall it, uh, approximately four to five hundred uh, uh, motions 
for withdrawal have been granted by district courts throughout the country. So they, you know, in terms of the magnitude of the uh, number of bankruptcy cases, withdrawal is something that does not happen very often. The district courts are not anxious to take the cases. They seem to uh, like the way the bankruptcy system has evolved. It's doing its job. It's working. And they seem not to want to uh, upset it. Uh, 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 the question is whether, in uh, the present case, Stern against Marshall, whether the Supreme Court is going to see it the same way. Now, you remember, maybe you won't remember, but uh, uh, back in uh, 1982, uh, the Supreme Court had a case before it called uh, Northern Pipeline against Marathon, uh, which... uh, uh, posed a challenge to the constitutionality of the 1978 bankruptcy jurisdictional system. And I remember at that time that uh, the uh, uh, view of uh, the profession and many judges was, well, you know, uh, the court wasn't going to upset the whole system. And lo and behold, that's precisely what the Supreme Court did in uh, in, in the Northern Pipeline case. Uh <clears throat> Uh, essentially what it, what it held in that case was that the uh, Article Three judiciary was entirely replaced by the bankruptcy system, uh, which involved uh, non-lifetime bankruptcy judges, and that ran afoul of Article Three. Uh, uh, the problem was, uh, and I think that it comes across in the Northern Pipeline decision, was that there was no control whatever that the Article Three judiciary had over the bankruptcy system. Uh, and the problem with that was that uh, uh, when you look at the purpose of Article Three, which is to protect the judiciary from interference by the political branches, by the legislature and by the executive, uh, uh, that goal is... Uh, Impaired, it cannot be fulfilled where the Article Three judiciary does not have control over the non-Article Three judges. Uh, under the present system, uh, uh, enacted in 1984 in response to Northern Pipeline, there are a number of very significant controls that the Article Three judiciary does have over bankruptcy, because the circuit courts, Article Three judges, appoint the bankruptcy judges. The district court judges decide what cases go to the bankruptcy judges by the reference, and the district judges also have the powerful cause to withdraw the reference. Uh, and the, it's that approach which is uh, uh, one of the primary theories of the amicus brief for the professors that has been filed. Uh, and uh, in, in that regard, uh, the Supreme Court has addressed this very interesting Article Three issue in a number of uh, post-Northern uh, Pipeline cases, in the Shore case and the Thomas case, uh, in, in which the court uh, indicates that uh, uh, not every litigant is entitled to an Article Three determination, uh, and that uh, uh, the way the court jurisprudence seems to address it, although it's not altogether clear, is that uh, it it turns on whether the 
purpose of Article 3, which I mentioned a moment ago, is impaired by the particular non-Article 3 structure that Congress has enacted. Uh, and that's the posture of the case. And no doubt the respondents will mount some sort of a uh, meaningful argument, although, frankly, uh, uh, I do uh, believe in the position taken by the uh, amicus briefs in this case. Now, there's one other very interesting aspect of this appeal, which I'll mention, and that is that the amicus brief of the United States uh, goes much further than the position that compulsory counterclaims are core. Uh, it uh, takes the position that the statute 157B2C of Title 28, uh, as it does, covers all counterclaims, including permissive ones. And uh, it uh, doesn't quite urge that permissive counterclaims uh, 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 constitutionally are core proceedings, but it reserves the right to take that position uh, and then uh, 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 advocates that uh, quite clearly uh, uh, compulsory counterclaims uh, must be held to be core proceedings, that uh, it, uh, that does not run afoul of the uh, purposes and goals of Article Three itself. What do you think about permissive counterclaims? Do you think that do you think Congress can constitutionally vest jurisdiction over permissive counterclaims in non-Article Three judges? I think counterclaims are wonderful. <laughs> uh, I really have not focused on permissive counterclaims. Uh, I can see arguments on on both sides. Uh, uh, on the uh, on the negative side, uh, a permissive counterclaim uh, is not an integral part of the proof of claim process. Uh, in that regard, it's quite clear from the Northern Pipeline decision that uh, the proof of claim process. Uh, is a central part of bankruptcy uh, that is part of what the court, in that case, called the uh, restructuring of debtor-creditor relations, which is one of the uh, uh, terms of court proceedings in Section 157b2, where the counterclaim is uh, compulsory. it, 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 it basically is uh, 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 part of the claim itself. Uh, matter of fact, uh, uh, I was very uh, proud of uh, my students uh, in, in working uh, on this brief who uh, came up with uh, uh, a, a very interesting uh, point in this regard. Uh, uh, their point was that a compulsory counterclaim is a direct descendant of the equitable doctrine of recoupment, uh, and that, uh, as such, the uh, a, a compulsory counterclaim uh, is an indivisible subpart of a unitary claim uh, that the creditor files. Uh, and because of that, the bankruptcy court, as a court of equity, has equitable power over the creditor's claim that necessarily extends to give it authority over compulsory counterclaims. Compulsory counterclaims, uh, in another sense, uh, 
under the jurisdictional provision, uh, Title 28, Section 1334B, which has three bases of bankruptcy jurisdiction, one of which is that the claim arise in the case, arising in jurisdiction. That type of jurisdiction, uh, uh, the way the courts uh, uh, analyze it, uh, is jurisdiction of a claim that could not exist outside of the bankruptcy case. Uh, and that's the nature of a compulsory counterclaim. Once bankruptcy is filed, a compulsory counterclaim cannot be asserted, uh, absence uh, stay relief, cannot be asserted outside of the bankruptcy case. It can only be asserted and must be asserted uh, uh, in response to the proof of claim, and if not asserted, it is extinguished. Uh, so that... Uh, uh, in, in in light of that jurisdictional provision, uh, a compulsory counterclaim arises in the case and and really becomes an indivisible part of the proof of claim, which is something that I think that uh, Supreme Court jurisprudence recognizes is something that uh, uh, non-Article III judges uh, can determine. If the court were to hold otherwise in this case, it may essentially be holding that the proof of claim process could not be determined at all by bankruptcy judges. So we'd, uh, we'd have the whole system and its fundamentals upset. Uh, well, it's not beyond the realm of uh, contemplation that the court might do it, but frankly, I would be somewhat surprised if it did. A central thrust of the amicus brief is that the control exercised by Article III judges over the bankruptcy judges under the post-marathon jurisdictional scheme makes the determination of compulsory counterclaims by bankruptcy judges constitutional. But could not that same argument be made to support a bankruptcy judge's determination of any dispute within the related to jurisdiction of the district courts? How do you limit it? Uh, y y yes, yes, it could, uh, except that uh, uh, it, 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 can be, it can be distinguished uh, uh, because uh, uh, that claim is not essentially and integrally a part of the proof of claim process. Uh, True, it could be a defense, uh, uh, and there certainly is a strong argument that, uh, in in that light, yes, uh, 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 it could be it, 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 it's constitutionally sound for permissive counterclaims uh, to be within uh, the sphere of the bankruptcy court. Uh, it's not an easy one, and I really have have not. I'm going to wait for the next case for that one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, once you concede that uh, a matter listed in 28 U.S.C. 157 B2 is core only if it is integral to the claims allowance process or part of the restructuring of debtor-creditor relations, which I think are phrases that you used, Aren't you? Well, that's the phrase that that's used in Northern Pipeline. That's precisely yes. its phrase and re and repeated uh, in Shore. Aren't you then agreeing yes, with the Ninth Circuit that there is a second hoop to jump through, other than just being listed in one fifty seven B two? 
No, it's simply a basis for supporting it in, uh, with respect to compulsory counterclaims. It makes it a stronger case. Mm. Uh, uh, the, the interestingly, uh, the uh, order uh, granting the petition for certiorari in this case was very specific in responding to the questions posed by the petition for cert. Uh, three of the questions posed directly uh, and expressly related to compulsory counterclaims. Uh, so I, I, I think that's what's before the court, and uh, I think that um, there's going to be an effort, no doubt, by respondent to expand that, but I don't think the court's going to see it that way, because it was very clear in their cert order that that was the limit uh, of, what, of, of what they wanted to take up. Does the court have to find that this was a compulsory counterclaim? No, that's been found for the court already, below. And it's, it, it's, it, it was not, it's not an issue posed, uh, uh, that was not an issue posed for cert. Uh, it was not, I don't think, raised uh, in the opposition to cert, and it's certainly not within the questions that the court has taken up, uh, taken up uh, to address. Uh, interestingly, though, uh, the amicus brief of the United States uh, well, sort of punted on that issue. Uh, it, it stated that uh, the character of the counterclaim uh, as compulsory was determined by the Ninth Circuit, and the court, the Supreme Court, should assume, was the words of the amicus brief of the United States, should assume uh, that the counterclaim is compulsory without addressing uh, whether or not it is. Very interesting approach to that. Why, so, did, why did the United States take that approach? Well, uh, I think that the United States, uh, I can only speculate, had uh, some concern uh, uh, about the uh, impact of the decision in this case if it went uh, uh, against the petitioner against the petition of the United States, not so much in bankruptcy, but because of the position of the United States in other circumstances as a defendant in cases where the United States would want to assert its uh, sovereign immunity. And I think that uh, that reservation had to do with that rather unrelated and complicated subject. That's speculation, though. Well, before we close, remind us again, when is the case being argued before the Supreme Court? It is to be argued uh, uh, at 1 p.m. on January 18, 2011. And I understand you're going to be there. Uh, I will be there with uh, our seven students, and they're all very much looking forward to it. They have uh, uh, been they're fully apprised of all of the briefs in the case. There's been a lot of conversation going on uh, before, certainly, and since the filing of uh, the amicus brief for the professors. I think that will continue on until January 18th, and no doubt continue for some time after that. So we are likely to see an opinion when? Well, I would assume it'll be before this term of court ends in uh, June. I don't know how long the court will take. Uh, what, what's very interesting about it is that uh, the post-Northern Pipeline decisions uh, expressly say that it is not altogether clear what what the court's 
jurisprudence and out of limits of uh, non uh, uh, of deviation from the plain text of Article Three will be. It is agreed that uh, uh, that there is that there is no absolute right in all cases uh, to an Article Three determination, and it may be that the court will, in this case, either uh, set a uh, a clear standard uh, for uh, what structures will and will not. Uh, uh, comply with Article 3, or continue to add to its confusion. <laughs> well, with that, we are out of time. I want to thank our guest, Professor Richard Lieb, for discussing with us the pending Supreme Court case, Stern versus Marshall. If you enjoyed this podcast, I invite you to access the 90 other podcasts on file at www.abiworld.org. This is Laura Bartell, resident scholar at the American Bankruptcy Institute, Thank you for joining us.